Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh. This is Jaskaran Singh Sandhu, the Executive Director for the World Sikh Organization of Canada. For the next three episodes of Ask Canadian Six, the podcast, we're, we're going to be changing it up a little bit. We're actually focusing in and doing a special series on Bill 21 and secularism in Quebec. Now, mind you, this was recorded about a week or two before uh, the piece of legislation officially passed on Sunday, June 16th. But the conversations that you'll be hearing in this episode and the next two following are timeless. They're really looking and getting really deep into you know, why secularism is such an issue in Quebec uh, and what are the implications of Bill 21, which we knew at the time of recording was going to pass. Uh, what does it actually mean for six coast to coast and obviously very important for six in Quebec? So after the jump, you'll be hearing a conversation from the first part uh, with some esteemed guest, and keep an eye out for the next two that will come shortly afterwards. See you after the jump. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh. This is Jaskaran Sandhu, the Executive Director for the World Sikh Organization of Canada, here for a very special series of Ask Canadian Six, the podcast. Uh, today we're focusing on Quebec. Uh, and with the help and obviously the assistance of our VP here in Quebec and Atlantic Canada, Amrit Gore, we've organized a bunch of interviews uh, with various guests that are active on the ground. Uh, and we're also joined by special guests from outside Canada, but equally as important in this conversation, Simranjit Singh, also uh, known as Sikh Prof, uh, someone who spends a lot of time in the faith-based uh, communities uh, in America. The hope here is to uh, expose to uh, the rest of Canada, especially our Sikh communities across uh, Canada uh, that mostly reside in Ontario and BC, uh, a deeper understanding and appreciation for what is actually going on here on the, in, on the ground in Quebec uh, with various communities. So I'm joined by three very distinguished guests alongside Amrit Gore, my colleague here at the WSO. First and foremost, uh, visiting us from uh, the grand city of New York, Dr. Simranjit Singh is an educator, writer, and activist who has frequently commented on anti-Sikh and anti-Muslim rhetoric and violence, largely in the, in the United States of America. Singh is a 2018 loose ACLS fellow for religion, journalism, international affairs, and a visiting scholar at New York University Center for Religion and Media. He's also a columnist for Religion News Service and NYU's Sikh Chaplain. Uh, yeah, you don't need to brag, Sarenji Singh, uh, <laughs> when you send these bios, okay? Just future, future <laughs> reference. Um, I'm also joined by Reverend Diane Rollert, uh, is the Minister for Unitarian Church of Montreal. She has been very vocal in the media and has been leading the coalition Inclusive Quebec, uh, whose objective is to mobilize opposition to Bill 21 through peaceful and meaningful action. CIQ organized a people hearing for those groups, uh, faith-based and anyone else who was excluded from hearings at Quebec City. And we'll, we'll dive into that mm. a little bit more uh, to voice their concerns. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Last but not least, I have Samir Zuberi, who is a human rights advocate for the Muslim community, a spokesperson for the NCCM, an organization we work with very closely at the WSO uh, in Quebec and has frequently been in the media commenting on issues of intolerance and Islamophobia. He also was one of the main organizers for the press conference, which included all the excluded groups from the public hearing in Quebec City. The 
uh, VC gained immense traction in the French and English media. Sorry, the press conference did. Uh, thank you, all of you, for joining us uh, in this very cozy uh, sound booth. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's uh, it's appropriate to start um, maybe with each of you uh, providing some insight on the actions you've taken here on the ground uh, and uh, provide a little more background. Because I, I think for a lot of folks, uh, they don't realize uh, the nature of the hearings that have happened to date about Bill 21. Uh, and they may not even understand or know that a lot of groups, the groups that would be most impacted by this legislation were largely ignored or just excluded from the hearings. Um, so starting with you, uh, Samir, um, you know, what are some of the, the activities that you've taken uh, here on the ground and the NCCM? Well, first off, I'd like to acknowledge that this type of legislation and these type of conversations around reasonable accommodation and, and the place of religious minorities within Quebec are, are perennial conversations. This is a perennial conversation that we're having within this province. Um, it's extremely tiring for us as visible minorities, as religious minorities within this province to constantly have this conversation. It's been ongoing for nearly 20 years. It's becoming more and more acute. And now we're at the cusp of passing legislation which will bar religious minorities from uh, working in as police officers, as, um, as lawyers, notaries, and, uh, and this is really problematic for us. So in terms of actions, well, I mean, we're all, we're all gonna go into that, um, but just very briefly, um, uh, there was, as you mentioned, a press conference that was organized um, that garnered a lot of uh, attention and attraction on the day that the hearings opened, which included um, faith groups uh, from all sectors of Quebec society, from Jews to Sikhs to Christians to Muslims. And uh, that was a very well-reported uh, press conference, one of the best press conferences personally I've seen, and I've been involved in a number of them over the years, um, where where there was high-level reporting. Um, there's been also some public actions uh, that have been organized, uh, including uh, demonstrations, the reading of um, the Quebec Charter in front of Legault's office, a second public action. Um, and that's not to say a whole host of other uh, important um, uh, you know, meetings that we've been having. So I'll leave it at that for now. So Diane, I, I believe it was uh, Coalition Inclusive, Inclusive Quebec that yeah, took the spearheaded uh, the press conference. Um, actually, no, that was something that was set up um, through Samir and uh, his group. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, and uh, so, but we were in, you know, certainly working together um, and supporting each other and what we were doing. Um, my The group that I'm involved with, um, we started out, uh, I'm also president of the Christian Jewish Dialogue of Montreal, and back in January, we knew that this bill was going to be introduced. We didn't know what it was going to be called at that time, but we knew something was coming, and we decided, a small subset of us decided that we would bring together, just invite uh, people from different religious communities to come together to say, okay, if this happens, how are we going to respond? And we had uh, speakers come in uh, to talk about the legal issues and also um, public opinion and where Quebec public opinion was going, which unfortunately has sort of tracked as being in favor of legislation like this, though some of that's questionable. Uh, and 
we got people together. We got people to speak with each other in small groups and to brainstorm ideas as religious people. And uh, we came up with kind of a, a game plan. And then a smaller group got together. Amrit was one of the people who came and joined that smaller group and uh, started to look at, well, what can we do? And we came up with this idea that we would do our own public hearings if there would be no peer hearings for the law. By that point, the law was about to be introduced. Uh, and so we've gone through this process where the law was almost going to be introduced, then it was introduced, and we've done a number of different actions, including uh, um, creating a human chain, which uh, um, was organized around the Palais de Justice, the, the courthouse in, in Montreal. Uh, and then also our own public hearings where we heard from about 26 different groups who had not been invited to speak in the governmental hearings uh, that were organized uh, by the the. Uh, current government, uh, and uh, and then we um, were invited as well. We were one of the few groups uh, invited to go and speak in Quebec City, much to our surprise that we discovered that we were on the list. And I think part of the reason that we were invited was because we were a coalition of religious people, and it kind of gave the government a way to say, well, we did listen to some uh -huh. religious people. We were the only group that testified and had uh, a Muslim woman who was a teacher wearing hijab. She was the first person, first first teacher wearing hijab that the um, commission actually heard from, uh, as well as uh, a Sikh wearing a turban. Uh, and uh, so we, I think, had an opportunity, it was the very last day of the hearings, but we had an opportunity to at least have the commission the go see that you know the people that they were actually affecting which they had not really done in this whole process they had basically left everyone out why would the the government not want to hear from communities that are most impacted that that seems odd to me that they would go out of their way not to include those folks in hearings I think they were they they were afraid to hear from people, which is what we were saying to them: is that a, a, a democratic government shouldn't be afraid of debate, and they wanted to really contain the debate. They wanted to have people from each side of the extremes can come in and speak and then be able to say, well, we're being very moderate in what we're doing. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't want, I don't think they, they wanted to do this very fast mm -hmm. and they didn't want to hear from many groups. Yeah. Yeah. So for context sake, what were the groups that were invited to speak? Um, there were some cheerleaders of the bill, um, right. you know, um, the, the pundits who basically are cheering on um, this sort of myopic type legislation. Um, then there were quite numerous. Um, there were a few, very few human rights organizations. Um, you can count them on less than one hand, essentially. Um, they did not um, consult with those who were directly affected uh, by the legislation, namely religious communities. Um, just to add, uh, why were they trying to actually railroad this through? I think um, Legault and the current uh, um, Coalition Avenir, uh, the Quebec government, uh, was um, took a lesson from the PQ, where they were putting forth this Charter of Values or Chat de Valeur, and that was a long 
open-ended debate that led to the downfall of that party. So Legault wanted to truncate that discussion and have a very like um, fast-paced, uh, railroaded piece of legislation pass. And that's why we have like, what is it, less than two weeks for public hearings. Right. So, um, so that, it, was, it, well, it was six days of public hearing. Yeah. It, that was it. Right. That was it. For six something days. that will impact people. To tear up a piece of legislation like the Quebec Charter and the Canadian Charter to mm -hmm. completely ignore it. These values of religious freedoms that have been distilled over centuries, actually, that have been born out of World War II. The reason uh, after um, religious minorities uh, were um, targeted in World War II, the world said never again. Never again, and we will we will crystallize the idea of religious freedoms that everybody, majority or minority, have a right to practice their faith, to have freedom of expression. This has been something that's been distilled within, um, um, you know, Western thought and also international thought over the centuries, and certainly within the last decades, and was crystallized. Now Legault and the current CAC government is saying we're going to tear this up. We're going to throw this in the rubbish bin and we're going to pass this piece of legislation and we're going to have a, you know, uh, we're going to have minorities that are completely ignored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the CAC government has received some criticism from outside Quebec, for sure. I, you know, in myself being from, from Toronto, uh, from the outside looking in, you know, I, I see you, the UN you know, essentially denouncing yeah. what's happening here. I see... Uh, English Canada media denouncing what's going on. You see some op-eds and opinions from outside Canada as well. But I wonder, uh, Amarcore, yourself, uh, your opinion here as well, you know, as someone who's done a lot of media hits here uh, in Quebec and done a lot of interviews speaking as someone that's directly impacted by this bill, um, what has the reaction been like in Quebec? I think the reaction is pretty unanimous. Most Quebecers are against this. You see this with the school boards. They're going on the streets. Their students are advocating and saying this is ridiculous. This has never been an issue. Um, our society is neutral from the get-go. We even we don't talk about religion in Quebec. We acknowledge that this person looks different or they come from a faith-based background, but we don't actually, you know, question them or say anything. We're like, you do what you want to do. You do. Uh, I'll do what I want to do. And there's that sort of camaraderie, right? And I think it's just this fear that's being instilled by the government that people who wear religious symbols are somewhat ambassadors of their faith and they're here to convert. And I, I think it, it's just it really shows that there's a disconnect with the government in terms of what minority groups, religious groups actually do and how they contribute. And um, they don't even have those means to go into those societies and ask them, how, what can we do to help you integrate? Or what are your needs? What are your concerns? Instead, there's this imposition that, ben, vous parlez pas français. We do speak French. Get that straight. Um, we work the people who are impacted by this bill. We're the most integrated in society. We've studied here. We pay our taxes. So why are you treating us like this? It's this stereotype. It's this narrative that um, we're all going to proselytize the whole community. Sharia law is going to be imposed. Um, we don't, we're dependent on the government for benefits. That's not the case. So you, you see the CAQ push the hearings through six days, shut it down. Obviously, don't speak to members of the community that are going to be most impacted by this. Uh, we see uh, faith-based communities like those of which all of you are involved with here on the ground uh, campaign and advocate uh, against this bill. 
uh, what's next? Like, can can this be stopped? Um, legal challenges uh, seem futile with the notwithstanding clause essentially being built in and, and vocally stated will be used. Uh, you know, what, what happens? What's the future of this? What does the fight look like? Uh, tomorrow, because I think what what's the what's the clock we're running up against here is mid June. This becomes law. June fourteenth. Mm-hmm. June fourteenth is the date we're looking at. Yeah. We we just got news today that maybe they will expand the public hearings, which uh, then suggests that maybe the public pressure that we have. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But I think the general feeling, certainly from my experience of being there in front of the commission and listening to Simon Jolin Barrette, who is the the minister of uh, what is it, immigration and inclusion, um, mm-hmm. has said that uh, you know he is not changing a word of this legislation, even though it's it's very flawed, it's incoherent, it's... Um, there, well, it's, it's unclear about what is a religious symbol, it's unclear about it's who unclear, referees, what is a exactly, symbol. Exactly, okay. yeah. And so the, the question is, it is, so we know that um, there will be legal challenges, we know that there will be legal challenges mm-hmm. immediately. If, if the law is passed, mm-hmm. you will see it, this is not, their hope has been, the CAC's hope has been, you know, they're going to pass this legislation and they're going to shift they're focused to all these other things they want to do, and they're going to find that this is it's just opening up Pandora's box, and it's just the beginning. Um, but I think for us, it's it's a matter of there are there's a legal approach, but there's also a need to change public opinion, mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of work that we need to do to go outside of Montreal, where there's a lot of support, as you know, the the, the community that Amrit is describing. There's a lot of understanding because people live with diversity here, um, but outside where the CAC has its base of power, um, kind of like what the situation in the United States is, you know, is looking like. Um, there are people that just have no, they have no exposure to difference. And so part of our job is going to have to be getting out there and creating bridges of understanding. And that's going to be a long-term process. And to pick up on, on what Dan said, um, that you can't fault people um, who are in good faith for just hearing one narrative, for you know, coming to a conclusion after hearing one narrative. So the the work that the coalition and us as um, religious communities are doing to outreach to the society at large is critical. We must continue to do that, continue to, you know, um, get our voices out there so that um, good faith people within Quebec can make an informed decision. Because right now there is a lack of information around, um, around and understanding around the issues are. In terms of the future, uh, where the future lies, you know, we have, for example, um, the present first off, where we had uh, UN Special Rapporteurs who commented on uh, the legislation, said that it's deeply flawed, urged um, the uh, Canadian and Quebec governments to not pass this legislation. That's quite important that the international community is starting to focus on this. Um, that we also have uh, this certain court challenge that will be happening once this bill is actually pres- um, made into law, and it most likely will be made into law. There's very little doubt. Um, uh, there's a sliver of hope where the current premier says that you know we're going to be extending the session. 
But um, as as Diane mentioned, uh, so there's a legal um, struggle, and then there is also the the key point of public advocacy, and we cannot understate that. The reason being is that it helps to get the other narratives out there. The public advocacy is is critical in terms of ensuring that um, Quebecers and Canadians and those who are observing uh, what's going on here are aware of what's happening and and see the flaws with this um, with this legislation. Um, so that essentially is uh, is critical that we continue the public pressure and not roll over and let this legislation pass. Okay. Yeah, Singh, I, you know, we talk about international eyes starting to look at this and, and helping build up the pressure on uh, the Quebec's government that's you know, happening in Montreal but in, in, and elsewhere in Quebec. Um, in America, there, there's a lot of similar conversations happening right now about hate and division um, and legislations like this that we're dealing with here in Quebec. I, I think it would be fair to say, well, it helps build that narrative. I, I, my understanding is that there's been increase of hate crimes or reports, reported hate crimes since this legislation and this conversation has erupted here in Quebec. You know, are there lessons to be learned um, or advice to be taken from um, America or from the conversations you have uh, dealing with anti-Sikh and Islamophobia issues in America? Yeah, sure. I think I think one of the things that the Sikh community learned very quickly after 9-11, which was, I think, um, for the first time in our more than a century of being in the U.S., uh, it was the first time we really realized that that people not knowing who we are is a major problem for us. You know, the, the backlash that occurred. Um, we, we learned quickly that it didn't matter who we actually were. It mattered how people perceived us. And, and that was the first time in our history there that I saw uh, our community start to grapple with that reality and to build relationships with other communities going through the same thing. So even even just personally, you know, I didn't have Muslim friends growing up. I grew up in Texas and there, there weren't many Muslims there when I was there. Um, but because of that experience, it made me then want to know Muslims and connect with them. And, and we had a shared experience. And, and those bridges that we created, very much like I've heard you, Samir, and Diane talk about uh, this afternoon, uh, those bridges we created have now, 20 years later, given us the strength to actually deal with the nastiness of the Trump era in a way where we don't feel isolated, where we feel like, you know, these experiences that we have are shared and that we have people to go to and that we can work together on issues. And so I think for me, um, that, that looking from the outside in is probably the most powerful thing because, you know, you look historically, these things happen, you don't always win, but what really gives a community resilience is the relationships that they have. Is there precedent for uh, faith-based communities working together as cohesively as they are now uh, in light of Bill 21? Like, was, was, it, was it this present. aggressive uh, the first time these conversations were brought up uh, under um, was the Charter of Values debate yeah. that happened not too long ago? I mean, it's interesting because I was just talking with people who, um, with a couple of Muslim women who were saying to me that their experience in, in 2014 with that legislation, the Charte Vela, um, that they felt so much alone and that this time around they feel like they're supported because we built this coalition. And uh, so 
I, I don't, I'm sure there is, pre, I'm sure that in the history of Montreal, there's certainly been faith-based initiatives. I mean, we, I, I'm part of, uh, a, you know, several different dialogues, a Christian-Muslim dialogue, a Christian-Jewish dialogue. Um, there are people who have brought together Jews, Christians, and Muslims into, into conversation. Um, but it, se- it feels like this time around it's become more broad-based mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and perhaps uh, more formalized than it's ever been before. Yeah. Well, one of the criticisms I think that is often laid against interfaith work is that it doesn't really manifest itself in practical terms, mm-hmm. um, whereas this time it really does seem uh, that there's, there's been a practical application of these, these coalitions uh, and you're seeing allyship really present itself in action. For sure. uh, is that something that uh, is, is being noticed uh, within individual faith communities as well, that, hey, we got to work more closely with one another Certainly. irrespective of maybe differences in faith systems, sure. but there's a lot more here that we can work with. That's I think the wonderful it, thing about this bill, actually, if you have to say something wonderful came out of it. In a weird twisted way. Yeah. 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 I I would suggest, I mean, like, um, you know, not to be, um, I I think we need to be honest about um, about, um, who we are as faith communities. And we are different, you know, and and we also have different narratives. We have different experiences. And also some of us are newly landed to a certain extent um, within Canada and Quebec. Um, And um, we also have um, certain, um, you know, we sometimes obviously we're focused here. We're born here, you know many of us mm-hmm. um, uh, but sometimes um, parts of our communities are born elsewhere so we, we we are attuned to narratives outside of Canada which sometimes actually um, doesn't allow us to sit around the table uh, because of that but the um, but I think that um, communities uh, are maturing where they're realizing that um, you know what's happening here in Quebec is critical this is where we are. This is our home. And we must be focusing on what's happening here on the ground and not thinking so much about what divides us overseas. Yes, we'll have differences when it comes to those conversations, but we're talking about what's happening here in Montreal and Quebec and Canada at this moment in time, which is where we're living, which is our home, and we must be working together. And I think that that evolution, is, it is exactly that. It's an evolution. It's a process. And it's one that we are, uh, you know, uh, learning. And um, the the relationships are much thicker than they ever were before, um, despite the fact we've faced the same challenges in the past. I think it's important for not only for those of us that live outside of Quebec, but even for those that are within Quebec that are are fighting this issue uh, to maybe understand a little bit more about uh, the history of faith in Quebec Mm -hmm. uh, and the impact of French culture in Quebec. Can you guys maybe jump into this conversation with me a little bit and flesh this out so we can have a true understanding of some of the foundational aspects for why this debate's happening today? Um, well, there, at one point in time, the Catholic Church was almost omnipresent in the life of people here in Quebec, um, especially when the province started, to the extent where um, the um, the church would suggest that women have more children and would kind of monitor that to some extent um, in order to, uh, you know, have a strong population to balance out the English, etc. Um, and uh, then came, you know, the 60s in America, there was the sexual revolution, uh, drugs, sex and rock and roll. In Quebec, it kind of manifested itself differently where um, 
the church kind of started to recede. And, um, but still similar trends were happening um, where traditional frameworks were loosening and new frameworks were entering. So the church lost ground. And that was a period that was called the Quiet Revolution here in this province. Um, and now we have, as a result of that, the church has taken a back seat within Quebec society. Um, and um, the, 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 the culture and, um, and whatnot is now driven um, without any form of um, religious involvement, um, very different from America. Um, and so that's a nutshell uh, what happened, I would suggest. And it was it, it was that the the church actually controlled all of the the major institutions, so the hospitals and the schools, and the social work, and so many institutions were run by the church, and the government took over all of that, and it became a secular society. And so when you hear from the people who have created Bill 21, they're saying this is a continuation of the Quiet Revolution, when in fact a continuation of the Quiet Revolution is really neutrality of the state and giving people the freedom to express themselves in other ways besides Catholicism. And uh, for many people here, um, their understanding of religious symbols is that people of authority wear religious symbols. So the priest wears a religious symbol, the, you know, the clothing, um, the nuns wore, uh, you know, the habits. Um, and so in their minds, when they see someone like Amrit wearing a, a turban or a woman wearing a hijab, what they see is a figure of authority. And they see that as somebody trying to force their position on someone else because that's, those are the stories that have been carried on from generations generation, we were forced, you know, our, our great-grandmother was forced to have so many babies because the priest in the town, the village, you know, um, shamed her into doing this. Um, and so I think there's a lot of, um, it, it's it's very visceral, it's very emotional at times. Mm -hmm. um, so is this is this scene in today's Quebec to just be a continuation of a quiet revolution? Is, is that why people may be supporting this or is there more to this than that? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the polling that we've seen actually suggests that as much as we've thought that that it was really about, you know, that history, that it's really comes down to the elephant in the room, which is Islamophobia. That when you see the people who are most in favor of the bill are people who have no exposure to Muslims or who feel strongly um, phobic towards mo Muslims uh, uh, versus people who are living in diverse communities and therefore they're more in, uh, against the bill and opposing it. Mm. So uh, it makes us re, you know, to question whether or not that, that narrative is really holding up. Um, but we're also seeing there's a lot of um, fascination with um, French philosophy and certain French philosophers and the French way of doing things that um, the intelligentsia here has been very much in favor of not all but some mm -hmm. and so I think that has also carried over into modern day Quebec and, and just to pick up on the French system I mean if you look at for example at law for example you have um, the civil law which is actually law that comes out of a book a code and everything stems from that code or a book and uh, the English system has common law which is judge-made law where many judges kind of like make 
laws that are um, that are present. So many individuals are participating in that. So one is French system is centralizing, whereas the English system is decentralized. You also even see this in gardens, the, the, the English garden versus the French garden. The English garden is, um, you know, uh, is a bit of a mess. The French garden is more uniform. So it's just the way in which um, French culture is, is different from English culture and how Quebec likes to import from France, which is more of a centralizing um, force than uh, we in North America are, including Quebecers. Um, but, but to pick up on the elephant in the room that Dan mentioned, I think it's important to note that, um, that immigration patterns and also what's happening internationally with September 11th in the English sector made uh, Muslims to be a national security threat. In Quebec, it's the cultural threat. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so the w same way in which the Quiet Revolution manifested itself differently in the 60s within Quebec, we see this September 11th manifested itself differently within Quebec, where the security concern wasn't uh, really there uh, as pronounced within um, America and in English Canada. What we have seen, though, is a, is a distinct um, cultural concern, and uh, that's related to newly landed communities, the Irish, Jewish, all communities face this at a certain point in time. Uh, some of them have overcome that. Um, the new kid on the blocks, uh, or the new kids on the block, I should say, Sikhs and Muslims are now facing this uh, in, a, in a distinct way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we've, we've seen this um, over and over again in the Sikh community, and this goes to Amrit Gore and Simrajit Singh, where often the victims of Islamophobia include Sikhs. Um, mm -hmm. Do you get a sense of the, the feeling that that's happening here, Amrit Gore? Yeah, I think people before, when they looked at me, they would kind of be like, oh, are you a boy? Are you a girl? And be like, I'm one answering. I'm a girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now it's just like, oh, I, I'm this woman who needs saving. I don't need saving. This was a choice that I made for myself. I'm the only woman in my family who wears a star, who wears a turban. Um, and... It's just there, there are, are differences and people aren't willing to even engage in that discussion because it's viewed as, oh, she's a deviant because she's not complying with the law or she's speaking against it or whatnot. When in fact, it's if you see something different, shouldn't you ask questions? Hmm. Oh, I mean, I want to just mention something I hasn't mentioned yet, which is like how difficult it is for women in ostentatious dress and men too. I, I don't... Um, like say it's not difficult for men, but it's very difficult for women um, who are facing this because, you know, number one, the nature of men, men sometimes are a little bit aggressive, even women towards women can be aggressive. And it's, it's you know, it's not at all a fun position to be in. As I'm read, I'm sure can personally um, testify to how, um, you know, how many interactions I'm sure that you're facing on a daily basis within society. Um, that is kind of like a, I don't mean to be um, discriminatory, but like a Chinese water torture. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's just like a like a slow drip that wears, yeah, mm -hmm. that wears you down. And I mean, for men and women who are ostentatious in their religious presentation, it's very difficult. You know, I'm sure. And uh, and um, it would be interesting to have a conversation with you in like five, ten years, and see how that has impacted you personally and mm -hmm. others. And yeah. it's interesting because I was talking to someone um, from a Muslim background, and he was saying that my daughter asked me, "Dad, am I doing something wrong by wearing a hijab?" And that's really troubling, right? Because 
I mean, you're a child and you're growing up with a stigma that who you are and what you represent, what you believe is just not complying with Quebec culture. It, it does. You don't need to worry, but it's just you're constantly being fed that. So it's very demoralizing. And if you want to integrate, Quebec is your home. I'm, I'm sure maybe you want to be a lawyer. Maybe you want to defend Quebec. Who knows if you're separatist? Who knows if you're not? But the fact that you're just being told implicitly and now explicitly you're not really a Quebecer because you don't look like us, that really sends a troubling message. And it's I can't imagine what it does for mental health for the next generation coming forward. So if, if the polling is showing that what's driving the, su- the support that exists in some pockets of Quebec for Bill 21 is not so much this longing for the quiet revolution and like this larger conversation of the history of that, but more so a modern you know, forms of Islamophobia. Um, a question for you, Samrajit Singh, uh, why should Sikhs care about Islamophobia? Oh, I mean, I think the, the easy answer is because we get swept up in that, right? So, like, if you want to survive, you have to deal with Islamophobia. That's our reality. Um, I think that's I think that's a strategic answer. Um, I think there's also an ethical answer, and it goes back to you know examples from our history where we look at the ways in which our Guru stood up to oppression against any community when they faced it, and stood up for the right to religion. And um, and so in our tradition, it's always been you stand up for those who are oppressed. You stand up for the marginalized, no matter what the consequences might be. So I think I think the the strategic impulse is sort of a strategy of survival. That's that's the natural one. Uh, but I think the one that really drives us when we when we step back and think about it is, you know, what is the right thing to do? What does what, what our tradition teach us? What does our history teach us? I think that's, I think that's it. The, the other thing that, I, that I'm sort of struck by in listening, in listening to you all um, is it's, it's not easy necessarily to message these things. And uh, Diane, we were talking about this a bit earlier that it may very well be Islamophobia, but if you call someone Islamophobic or xenophobic or racist, um, it doesn't resonate, right? The conversation shuts off. And so there's there's another question of strategy here, which is you, you might understand analytically what's going on here and what is being sort of disguised under the idea of secularism. Um, but then how do you actually then combat that in a way that people are receptive and, and I think that's an interesting and important question too. I think there's um, there is a, a bright light in the polling that we we were able to commission and that is that people's opinions about Bill 21 would change significantly if it was shown to them that it is counter to and violates the Quebec Charter of Rights, which is this tremendous document that was passed in 1975 unanimously, um, which is something that Quebecers have been very proud of. It was the first charter in Canada and first charter of rights. And so um, I think that that just reminds us that, you know, if people are given the right message and if they're, if they you know, can see the reality of what this is. This is about that. They're they're when they see that it really threatens the core of the values here, of our values here. That uh, perhaps 
you know, things can turn around. So I think it's getting that message across that is sure. the, the challenge. And, and just the last point I'd like to add is uh, that I feel that neighborly interactions, like this like, is a bread and butter of eliminating discrimination. You know, just getting out of our homes, meeting people who are uh, different from us, uh, you know, going to other people's spaces um, and inviting people to our spaces, that is the key thing uh, that, um, that, you know, reduces discrimination, creates understanding. And there's a point I want to add, so I'll be the last point, um, is just in our communities, especially minority groups, we don't have the, the knowledge of soft skills. When you go to the grocery store, I'm supposed to smile. Um, I ask, how are you? Good day. Merci. Bonjour. Uh, salut. Or whatever. That helps tremendously because it breaks stereotypes. And I think that's something that all minority groups who look different really need to master and have those conversations at their institutions and just, you know, there's coaching that, that needs to be done. And at the same time, my experience with people who are Francophone Quebecois is we're not racist. We have no problem with your skin color. We just have a problem with this ideology that you're quote unquote imposing. So it's even having those conversations about diversity and including people of faith in those conversations. So if it's a workplace, right, having someone of a religious background be part of that conversation and just show that they're a normal person. They went talkie. Um, they're, they're crazy happy that, you know, the Raptors are doing whatever they're doing. I don't watch basketball, so I have no idea. But <laughs> <laughs> I just had to plug it in there. But it really normalizes the person. And I think that's the work of our communities to also do in light of everything that's happening. And as Diane previously mentioned and Samir mentioned as well too, that this is an ongoing effort. This is not done. If anything things in Quebec can get much worse. And they might well, so that needs to be in the action plan. So if we were to kind of conclude this conversation, uh, for those listening outside of Quebec, what can they do to help Quebecers fight this? Because I believe there's, there's usually a fear from those of us on the outside that if we just stick our nose in this debate, it just makes things worse. And should we just quietly watch from the sidelines? But yet we still want to be helpful. Uh, so how does that look? I, I would suggest um, like, you know, obviously partner up with those of us who are within the province. Um, so um, if you're from a community outside, make sure that you're in, in lockstep with those that are in the province, um, number one. Number two, I, I would say that don't shy away from, you know, getting involved. We need that support. Um, number three, I would say that, um, that, you know, call out what's happening here, but understand that the people who are in this province, the majority have only heard one narrative. So give, give an excuse, you know, to the majority of the population. The majority are good faith people who just need more information to come to um, a sound, uh, reasonable judgment. At this point in time, that information isn't out there. Yeah. And I think just providing resources when we come knocking at your door and asking <laughs> for it, we, you know, and that's that's the question is, is, you know, as we learn what's actually going to happen, you know, if the bill is passed, then if there's going to be legal action, then it may be reaching out and saying, okay, we need, we need financial support to do this. We need legal support. Um, and, uh, and the same for going out and, and reaching out beyond, 
uh, the borders of Montreal that that there may be resources that we need. And so I think, but I would echo exactly what Samir has said, is that to really be in touch with the people who are on the ground here, because we we have to be mindful that there's always this tension between... um, the you know Quebec and the rest of Canada, and we don't you know we want to be careful that it doesn't then become a question of um, you know is the rest of Canada trying to tell Quebec what to do? Well, okay, fine then. You mm-hmm. know, we're going to be a petulant child, and we're just going <laughs> to you know yeah. stand our ground this way. So we we want to be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. So it's more important for to re- support those of us who are here on the ground. Narco yourself, what can six from across Canada do to help our sick Quebecer brothers and sisters? I think it's keeping an interest in the narrative and hearing all the different perspectives. Um, If you hear a story from a Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, a Sikh, they're all the same. They're all, they have the same needs, the same concerns. And if you can help anyone out, do it, whether that be small or big. And also at the same time, Quebec is part of Canada and we can't ignore that. So have a conversation with your local MP and say, look, this is someone in my community, my brother, my sister in Quebec facing this, what are you doing? Are you paying lip service? Or actually, are you contributing to the dialogue in the federal level that's meaningful for Quebec? Simranjit Singh, as an American, (laughs) uh, who who receives a lot of criticism, I'm sure, on a day-to-day basis from those who are not in America. Uh, What are your experiences at? Like, what's helpful uh, in in your opinion? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, for your sick listeners, I, I would... I, I always try and look at history and, and our gurus' lives and, and what, what did they model for us. Um, and in for, any, for, for a situation like this, I, I always find Guru Tegh Bahadur to be so inspiring. You know, here's, here's a man who, whose own community was not being persecuted. And when he was approached by another community who was being challenged with the right to practice their faith, Guru Tegh Bahadur stepped up and he went to the emperor and he called out the emperor and said, you know, this is wrong and you need to stop it. He didn't have to do that, but he felt like he did because he believed that sincerely everyone should have the right to practice what they believe. And he lost his life for that, right? He was executed. He was tortured. And and for me, that example is so inspiring because what it tells us, it tells us multiple things. One of the things it tells us is that we as a community believe sincerely in the right to the freedom of religion and that we are willing to do whatever it takes to ensure that right, whether it's for us or for anyone else. And, and you know, what is, what is the practical takeaway? I don't, I don't always know, right? It changes from situation to situation. But what, what I always think about is his courage to show up, right? It doesn't really always matter what you do. There are different ways to help, different ways to get involved, but the courage to show up is the most powerful message we can take away from his story. So with that, I want to thank all of you for joining us here today. I know this is a hard conversation. I felt like we were very somber, like, and <laughs> somewhat depressed almost uh, talking about it, but it, 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 the implications of it are huge. And mm. I think there's real legitimate concerns from coast to coast uh, mm. about how we can ensure that this doesn't happen in Canada or uh, and we challenge this with everything we have. Uh, so I thank you all for not only participating in this conversation, but for all the work that you're doing on the ground. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our special series on Bill 21 in Quebec, uh, which was recorded in Montreal with some very special guests. The next two episodes uh, will 
continue on this topic. We'll be bringing some new voices in uh, and exploring some other some other angles a little more deeply. Uh, I look forward to sharing those with you. In the meantime, if you're concerned with what's going on in Quebec, uh, you know, take the opportunity to contact your local MP, regardless of where you are in the country, or your local MPP or MLA. Even your counselors, you know, contact everyone that's in an elected official capacity and let them know that you are concerned about this. You're concerned about Bill 21, you're concerned about its implications, and you expect your elected officials to use every tool available to them to either stop it or let it be heard loud and clear that this is unacceptable and will never happen anywhere else. With that, we'll see you uh, in uh, hopefully a short while with the other two episodes, also recorded in Montreal. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh.